God, traces of your grace are strewn all through our schedule-puckered lives, and sometimes, on odd occasions, we stumble over them and realize, in a stunning heartbeat moment, the mystery and majesty and claim of what we take for granted. So we come to worship, to pray, to thank you. But more, we would not leave unchanged, comfortable in our familiar ways, our busily diminished days. O God of our deepest discontent, grant us to recognize in the nag of our longing your spirit to break through and free us from the cages in which we too often put ourselves, the wearying rush, the politic word, lying congeniality, the strategies to succeed, the circular socializing, everything that contorts our humanity, closes our ear, glazes our eyes, wilts our hearts, pilfers our souls. We know at our core, God of patient generosity, that our easier response to your grace, the quick prayers, the brief span of worship, the shrug at sermons, the gifts of money, leave us impoverished still and stuck. We ask to be stirred and disturbed towards something daring and sweaty and fun, outrageously, wonderfully soul-satisfying in the grace of your summons to love you and neighbor and enemy as we love our truest, freest self. Slow us, calm us, and ease us into being good Samaritans to each other and to the poor, the abused, the forgotten, the outcast and rejected, the children and the aged, and those whose fear makes them obnoxious. Make us bold to hold those in power accountable to model generosity to the wealthy, humility to the arrogant, mercy to the self-righteous, compassion to the indifferent. O wily God, meet us in the unexpected places of our daily round and make us glad of heart in our tilt toward justice and joy in our families, our work, this church, this community, this nation, with this precious earth and human family you love so much that you press us to join you in pressing it a bit closer to your kingdom. Amen. Our scripture text this evening is from the book of Mark, chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right when you say that God is one 
and there is no other than him. To love him with all the heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answers wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from that time on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Last night, uh, Sandy and I had the opportunity to go to a party for the Change Center, which is uh, just this wonderful facility that's going to be built over by Overcoming Believers Church, which is a church in East Knoxville that we uh, are partnering with in many ways. It's going to be this wonderful place where urban teens can come together and meet with minors and get training and all sorts of good stuff. And the evening ended with some dancing, and I made the mistake of getting too close to the dance floor. And at, at one point, uh, Carmesia, Daryl's uh, wife, grabbed me and Sandy and drug us into the center of the dance. Now, I keep this quiet from people. Um, I'm really awesome uh, I'm on the dance floor. I don't like people to know that. You know, I, I kind of intimidate people and things like that. But... So I kind of hold back. So at any rate, I'm out there, and I'm busting a few moves, and uh, uh, the awe is kind of, kind of settling in. <laughs> and so one friend comes up and says, you know, there is one thing I know when you're on the floor. I said, yeah, and he said, that I'm not the worst dancer out here. <laughs> then another guy comes up and says, this could appear on America's Funniest Home Videos. And then this morning, I get a text from a former friend who compared my dancing uh, to this. Okay, so I'm feeling a lot of love from you all here, which makes me glad that tonight we're talking about civility and how to treat people kindly. David Johnson... <clears throat> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, true story. I got that this morning. Um, in all seriousness, I had decided that we'll, we're going to talk tonight about civility as we explore this theme of what is a Christian supposed to do in this crazy political season? I, I got an email from a friend uh, a couple weeks ago, if we could put that up. Uh, she says, I'm sorry I keep sending you all this stuff, but I have to tell you I'm really struggling with all of this vitriol and hate. I'm sending these as your parishioner, seeking some wisdom and clarity to a world that is spinning out of control, and I'm spinning with it. So we, we thought we'd step back and spend three Sundays as we move towards the election uh, just asking this question, how, how are we supposed to faithfully engage this whole world, this whole system, when the world seems to be getting increasingly mean-spirited and dark. And I said, well, let me try to give you three words. And the, last week, the first word was Jesus. It's a good place to start, right? And we said, look, at the end of the day, our trust is in Jesus. Our trust is in Christ as Lord of history. Christ is going to be sovereign on November 9th, just like on November 7th. 
let's be careful. There's a difference between loving our country and being patriotic, which I personally think is a good thing, to moving just past that into idolatry, which is a bad thing. And it's always hard to know where you are, right? And so we talked about that last week. Interesting, and I'm not going to talk much about this tonight, but a friend of mine uh, in our church who's a person of color, uh, he wrote me and he said, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little weary of all my white uh, Christian friends posting Jesus is Lord um, because for you, Doug, no matter what happens on November 8th, you're going to be okay. But I'm scared. And I learned yet again just, uh, just how differently we can experience life in this great country depending on our background and heritage. Well, the second word that can guide us tonight is love. Jesus teaches us to love our neighbors as ourselves, And we're especially to love those with whom we disagree uh, and maybe even feel strong feelings of revulsion. Uh, let's just look at a couple of scriptures tonight. We're doing a little more topical. Because, and this is one of the challenges. You can't say, well, let's go to the book in the Bible that talks about how to engage a democracy. It's not there. They didn't have any idea of a governmental structure that you could, you could engage. So you have to kind of piece things together. So that's why we're approaching it. Peter writes to uh, Christians living under Nero. And uh, Nero, of course, was uh, a bad person who martyred many, many Christians. And this is what he said. Honor everyone... Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Wow. That word honor uh, means to esteem, to value, the dignity of, to recognize the worth of. It can even be used to revere. And, And it goes back to this idea that all human beings are made in the image of God. All human beings are made in the image of God. And therefore, we should honor them. We should respect them. We should ascribe them worth. We should treat them with dignity, no matter how much we disagree with them or dislike them. Paul wrote his letter to Titus under a similar kind of government, and he tells this young pastor, uh, I think that, yeah, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. Uh, He writes a similar note to the believers in Rome. He says, uh, bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Here's one from the letter to the Hebrews. Strive for peace with everyone. And then perhaps the the scripture that addresses this theme the most is from Romans chapter 14. Um, quoting from the message, welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do, and don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with. 
even when it seems that they are strong on opinions but weak in the faith department. Remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. So where does that leave you when you criticize a brother? And where does that leave you when you condescend to a sister? I'd say it leaves you looking pretty silly, or worse. Eventually, we're all going to end up kneeling side by side in the place of judgment facing God. Your critical and condescending ways aren't going to improve your position there one bit. Read it for yourself in Scripture. As I live and breathe, God says, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will tell the honest truth that I and only I am God. So tend to your knitting. You've got your hands full just taking care of your own life before God. (laughs) I like that translation. So one of the things that's clear in Scripture uh, that Christians are to live a life marked by love of neighbor and that one of the ways that we see that love characterized is in our speech, in the way we talk about each other and in the way we talk about people we don't agree with. We should honor them. We should give them dignity and respect. It's one of the ways that we witness, is the way that we use our words. So what would this mean for us practically as we engage the political process? Well, first, it might be helpful to decide whether or not you need to say anything at all. Can we just start there? (laughs) This is a noisy world. And there's somewhere along the way we got this idea that if I think it, I should burp it out in a tweet. And that the world should know every last thing I think about. The the Bible cautions against that idea. Uh, Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgressions are not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Psalm 39.1, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. An Orthodox bishop, I think from Syria, wrote, Sometimes silence is not indicative of a lack of things to say, but a wise withdrawal until God provides the right opportunity for response. So, the next time you're thinking about uh, posting something on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatever the new technology is I haven't caught up with yet, um, step back and just ask, will posting this be helpful? That might actually end Facebook. (laughs) If people ask that question. Uh, Has someone already said what I want to say? You know, I, for a while, I, I had the opportunity at the New Sentinel to kind of write whatever I wanted to write, and I wrote probably 15, 20 pieces, and the opportunity's still there, and I may do some more writing at another point. But I just, I just felt the Lord wanted me to lay it down. It felt like, have you ever been at a, a holiday dinner or something or a party, and everybody is talking at the table? And, and you either have to be real loud and just kind of elbow your way in to talk about the football game you watched or you just check out. I just feel like our culture right now is that way. It's like this big Thanksgiving dinner with all these loud people and nobody's listening and uh, I'm not, I decide I'm just going to not 
I'm going to eat my turkey <laughs> and not say anything much uh, right now. It's just a real loud time in our life. Will posting this contribute to peace? Um, I mean, what, what really are you expecting to happen when you tweet that article or meme or whatever? And another question you might ask is, what would be lost if I did not post this? <laughs> that also might end Twitter <laughs> and Facebook and things like that. Well, of course, there are times when it is appropriate to speak, but, but I, I, I don't want to just skip over this. This is something I, I think we can learn from the monks, and they have a very developed theology of silence. And one of the things, I was rereading the rule of St. Benedict on this a little bit this morning. One of the the reasons why they value this is because uh, you have to have silence within before you can have silence externally. And they're trying to cultivate a a way of being in the world in which they are silent within. And and, and that's just really hard to do in the world that we're living in. But it's a good goal to shoot for. Well, suppose you you decide to speak. What what should you keep in mind? Well, first, uh, pay attention to what's going on inside of you. Um, Christian speech is supposed to build other people up. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So the only thing that I should say at a dinner party or or whatever are things that give grace to those who hear and build up. In other words, help move this image bearer towards the image of God, towards the fullness of who they are supposed to be in God. That's the only things that I'm supposed to say. Everything else I can just shut up. Our words come out of our hearts, which in the Bible means our spiritual and emotional state. Luke 6.46, Jesus says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if I'm speaking out of fear or anger, um, I'm I'm not likely going to be edifying in what I say. Second, if I decide to speak, remember the golden rule. Matthew 7, 7, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That's a, a great thing to remember whenever we speak about anything, but particularly about politics and politicians and people we don't like or agree with, is that whatever I say... I should be comfortable having said about me. Third, beware of name-calling. It's one thing to not like Mr. Trump and people who vote for him, but if you say, as has been said, he is a Nazi and people who vote for him are Nazis, you've not contributed anything to peace or to a deeper understanding of the issues. Uh, you, you may believe that uh, you may disagree with Hillary Clinton and pro-choice, but to say everyone who votes for Hillary Clinton is a murderer or a baby killer, you're not helping anything. Uh, it's not contributing towards a deeper understanding of the issues or any kind of peace. So I, I think we should avoid name-calling, and frankly, I think we should avoid uh, spreading around and supporting those who create this kind of uh, negative climate. We shouldn't retweet stuff like that. And fourth, acknowledge the spiritual power of language. And um, 
This may strike you as odd, but I think this is biblical. Words in the Bible are more than words. They're charged with spiritual power. And when you speak a negative word, especially if it's filled with hate towards another human being, it can function like a curse and bring demonic energy into their life. Uh, Proverbs 18.20, death and life are in the power of the tongue. You see this in the story of Balaam and Israel. Uh, Balaam isn't an Israelite, and, and they go out and they try to get him to curse uh, their enemies. Jesus curses a fig tree, and then the next day Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. You know, The speaking of a curse, the speaking of a negative word, actually has a physical effect on the living organism uh, to take life from it. Ecclesiastes 10.20, Even in your thought, do not curse the king, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. He could just be you know, speaking poetically. Some interpreters have felt he was talking about demonic spirits there. That when you, when you curse someone, when you say something about Clinton followers or Trump followers or whoever it is, that somehow in the spirit realm you're actually sending demonic spirits to harm and afflict that person. So negative and angry words hurled at another person are curses, and we should not speak them. I have a friend, uh, an African-American pastor, and I was with him one day, and, and uh, someone just said something half-jokingly, you know, like the way you do, he's driving home or something. He says, well, I hope you're getting a wreck. And he steps back and he says, don't speak death on me, brother. And he was dead serious. And, and, and I, I actually I was in that church for a while, and, and I heard that many times. And I think it was that they understood this biblical worldview, this biblical idea that words aren't just words. There's a spiritual reality here, and when you curse someone, it can actually uh, hurt them. Well, I wanted to end uh, just briefly by by talking about the limits of civility. Uh, Christians are truth-tellers. Sometimes we have to share hard, uncomfortable truths. Sometimes there is no on the other hand. Sometimes it is a sin to remain silent. We need to balance truth-telling with hospitality. We need to balance standing up for truth and creating a space where people can be welcome even when we disagree. But here's a thought. I'm not at all sure I'm right on this. It's just something I've been wondering about. I wonder if truth-telling is changing. And by that I mean, um, I wonder if truth-telling in the 1950s as Christians was different than it is today. I mean, you're obviously aware that for about 200 years, the church had a home court advantage. Uh, The culture had a vague commitment to Christian values. And so church, church leaders uh, were actually on the cover of Time. One of the prayers tonight, Reinhold Niebuhr, he was on the cover of Time like three times. Uh, Theologians spoke to the culture at large because they held this common civic Christianity, and people would actually feel conviction over their pronouncements and things like that. And so they were able to be very public. But that's pretty much gone. Um, the only time you'll see a theologian on the cover of Time is, you know, if he's 
killed somebody. Um, th those days are over. The, the, the culture is no longer looking to the church to pronounce on some shared Christian value system. And actually, and this is what's so intriguing to me, I haven't worked it all out, and I'm sure you can think about it more. We are moving towards a world that is much more like the first century. Uh, America in the 21st century is much more like the first century in that we are very pluralistic. There are many gods. Truth is more relative. Uh, it's more about you just accept me and I'll just accept you and we'll all get along. It's more that kind of a, a world now. And so when Peter addresses truth-telling in that pluralistic, relativistic uh, context, he says this in 1 Peter 3.15, In your hearts regard Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, that, that's a word to a church that is in no sense in power. <laughs> that is a word to a community living on the margins, under persecution. And the idea seems to be, hey, I, I want you, and I think the, the verb is plural there, I want your community to live a holy life. I want you all to live like God. I want you to live a different way. I want you to live for me. And, and I want you to live in such a distinct way that people notice and they ask you, what do you believe? Why do you believe that? And then you tell them. And think about it. You wrestle with it, but it just strikes me that there's a shift going on here in our culture and that the book of 1 Peter might actually be uh, a very helpful place to start to try to figure out how do you tell truth in a pluralistic, diverse, relativistic uh, era. End with a story I heard recently. Um, John... Uh, who wrote the Gospel of John, the Letters of John, beloved disciple, wrote the book of Revelation. Tradition tells us um, that when he was let out of prison on the Isle of Patmos, he was a very old man in his 90s, and they brought him back, and uh, when they could, the church would kind of go find him, and, and they revered him because he was one, perhaps the only, the last man alive who'd known Christ personally and uh, loved Christ deeply and was revered for his wisdom. And they'd come to him and they'd say, you know, Apostle John, what do you think I should do about this? Apostle John, what should we do about this? We've got this enemy, we've got this threat, we've got this problem. And no matter what anybody said to this nonagenarian, his answer would be, love them. Love them. Those are good words to keep in mind during this election season. 